Hi there, Ilona Thompson with Palette Exposure. I'm very excited to introduce you to the chef by the name of Nate Singer. Over the years, I've had a good fortune to interview many culinary heroes, celebrity chefs and like, and had some fantastic conversations. However, this one is unlike any other. Nate comes from humble beginnings that were rich in experience and lessons in self-sufficiency. His skill set is quite diverse and unique, and his mentors came from all walks of life, from ethnic old-school cooks to world-renowned celebrity chefs. He learned from the best and mastered the art of butchery, charcuterie, and many others. But perhaps most importantly, he became a researcher, a philosopher, and an advocate that thinks a great deal about food consumption and the effect that it has on each and every one of us. So if you're a meat lover, happen to be on a keto diet, or simply care about the integrity of what goes into your body, you cannot afford to miss this conversation. As little consumers, we shy away from the difficult conversations, such as commodity markets and where food really comes from. Nate believes that food is medicine, and I invite you to find out why. So I am really so excited to learn about your journey. Cool. Like from the very beginning, like where you were born in your early days, you know, in the restaurant yeah. environment, because I know you practically grew up in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, what that taught you, like, I just want to hear everything. I'm super curious. All right. I can tell you everything about it, I guess. Yay. I remember it pretty well. Um, when I was younger, I was born in a place called Powell, Wyoming, which is next to Cody. It's about 20 uh-huh. miles away. Uh-huh. And it's an agriculture town. Uh, okay. It's very fertile. Lots of fields. Um, very small community of about uh-huh. 5,000 people. And my mom lived there, and my dad was on the road as a traveling musician. All right? So wow. He would be home, you know, and we would go see him, and we had a great relationship with him, but he spent a lot of his time playing music on the road. Mm-hmm. And my mom, she wound hydraulic motors in the, for the oil fields. What? So she was a, she's a rough hand. Yeah, she's tough, you know, one of those hard-working ladies that people respect. And one of I'm those kidding. things. And she was raising uh, me and my older brother. My older brother is four years older than me. And he was the one that was really, um, you know, took the charge of being the guy, you know, in the house. And, and he kind so, of took that role, yeah, the paternal role, if you will. Yeah, and my mom was so busy that it was a lot of time me and him. She would go yeah. to work at five in the morning. So when I was, you know, six years old, I, me and my brother were waking up for school by ourselves. And we were making a breakfast, and we would, my grandpa would sometimes give us rides, or we would walk to school, you know. How long was our walk? Um, it was only a few blocks, three blocks or so, okay. but, you know, we are in our neighborhood, so it was okay. That's good. And then <laughs> after school, you know, we would come home with our friends, and my mom wouldn't get home till 5 or 6 at night, and we would, you know, kind of have to provide for ourselves, and then she'd come home and put food on the table every night, and we'd sit down and have a nice dinner of what she grew in her garden, which was mostly green beans, because she was good at it. So we got so sick of eating green beans. It's hilarious. Every meal, it's like, what are we having, Mom? Healthy. Elk, elk and green <laughs> beans. Yeah, and then we went hunting, you know. And so my mom was a hunter as well, and my granddad, um, he was a really big hunter. He loved it. And his name was uh, Smokey Richardson. And Smokey, it's like a movie character. Yeah, he was great. He was a Carlson Raider in World War II, so he was a very strong man. And we all idolized him, you know, he was very, very strong and he had a farm and his farm um, was in Ralston, Wyoming in between Powell and Cody. 
and he focused on, you know, boarding some horses, but then he grew hayfields for the most part, and he grew a giant garden, and he had, you know, animals running around. So that was more my introduction, and my upbringing on a farm was at my grandpa's house while he was taking care of us. Mm -hmm. um, but they would go hunting, and they would shoot elk every year, and what they would do is hang it in the garage, you know, at my grandpa's. And so every part of the family would shoot one or two, depending on the tags you get, and after the season, you would let them hang. And they would hang in that garage. And I remember walking in as a kid and seeing, you know, seven to 12 elk carcasses hanging in a garage. And they're you know. huge, aren't they? Oh, they're big, yeah. Big animals, beautiful animals. You don't want to shoot a small elk because you can't eat it, you know? You're looking for meat at this point. We're not hunting for trophy. You're hunting to feed the family. And so my dad is a trained butcher. And he was trained at the National Meat Cutting School in Toledo, Ohio. And he did that because my granddad owned grocery stores and he needed someone to run the meat department. And so he sent my dad to school, to butchery school. And when he came back, he ran all the meat departments in my granddad's grocery stores. And this was the other side of the family that this was happening on. Not the farming family, but the business family. Yep, and his name was Grandpa Max, Max Garner. And he was a great guy, didn't graduate high school, but ran, you know, multiple grocery stores and was a very successful man with the education that he did receive. And um, he showed my grandmother, who was poor from the Grapes of Wrath, you know, down south yeah. with the cotton-picking families going all the way from Oklahoma to California. He showed her a better life, you know, by feeding people. And mm -hmm. so for me, it was a... Uh, very influential, you know, to be around food and to understand why my family was so intertwined with, you know, the food. And with our freezers, you know, my dad would come home and he would cut the elk for everybody at my grandpa's house. And so he would get in there and it was amazing to see the whole family get together and work. And so as the kids, our job was cleaning silver skins, you know. So as they cut the elk, they would throw the silver skins to us and we would scrape the meat off for jerky and for ground beef, ground elk and all that stuff. And it wasn't labeled like it is, you know, at my butcher shop or at our butcher shop. It's labeled like, uh, you know, elk steak, elk roast, and elk burger. That's what, we, that's what was on an elk, you know, growing up as a kid. Nate, go grab some milk out of the freezer. You open it up, that's all there is, you know. It's either steaks, roasts, or burgers. Stew meat maybe sometimes, but not very often. And uh, always with green beans. And so it was kind of a cool way to look at the animal itself. And I kind of implemented that in my future career as far as the technique of cooking and how to identify different muscles in an animal in my butchery you know, experience, which I'll talk about later. But um, it was really good for me to grow up the way I did with the hardships that we had and my mom having to provide food for us because she grew her garden every year, we worked in the weeds, we you know, picked our vegetables and we had what we had. And you know, certain times there wasn't much money there outside of what we had, you know, so it was very frugal and it was really nice, you know, to have a family that could support. And uh, when I turned about 10 years old, my dad decided he wanted to stop trekking on the road playing music. And so in Cody, Wyoming, he bought a place called Cassie's. It was Cassie's Supper Club. Um, it was built in 1922 and it's an old um, Ville repute. Hmm. And Cassie Waters ran it. And um, back in the Buffalo Bill days, my dad grew up about two blocks from it, wa wow. walking down there to play as a kid, you know? And it's got a big stage, it's got three full bars, it's 20,000 square feet, and it's got a restaurant that seats about 100 people. That's and a big so restaurant. It's big, yeah, it's big. And so 
when he bought the place, you know, he was a rock and roller and he was thinking, I'm going to play music every night, you know, I'm going to do this and this. And then all of a sudden the restaurant happened and it consumed his life, you know. So there we were. He was there to play music and the restaurant was actually overwhelming the bars, you know. And so it was like, all right, we're all working. And so I was dishwashing at 10 when I was there with my brother and sister. And so from about 10 to, you know, 12 years old, I was a dishwasher and we all lived at the restaurant and we all worked. And um, after that, I decided, hey, like, dishwashing's good, but I want to talk to people. You know, I want to see people. I want to interact with people. And so I moved to the front of the house and started training with my stepmother. And uh, she trained me into busing and, you know, expoing. And I would, you know, follow servers around and the whole thing and just kind of learn the restaurant world. Like I was training to run it one day, you know what I mean? And uh, yeah. I did that for a few years, and I became a server when I started high school because it was good money, you know, waiting on people, and it was fun because it was interaction, and we were working, and it was, it was great. And so all through high school, you know, I focused on that stuff. I took, you know, the culinary classes that they did offer in high school, like Pro Start programs and all those kind of competition things we did, you know. Um, but high school was mostly about sports for me. Yeah, I played basketball what I did so when I graduated I had scholarships for basketball and I had to decide you know what I was going to do if I wanted to keep playing sports or if I wanted to you know pursue a career in food um, and I had never really cooked back then wow yeah so when I was like 18 you know I was awesome at the front of the house and I could wait on tables and take on so many customers and make people so happy. But I didn't know much about cooking. I knew how to grill steak, you know, how to roast a potato and how to make <laughs> bread because they made bread every day at Cassie's. Every day for 30 years, Dad's made bread. And he makes dinner rolls, he makes you know, hamburger buns, all kinds of stuff. They make soup every day. And it's just an old, you know, world-style country kitchen. It's awesome, but it's yes, the premier it steakhouse in Cody. And so it's been written up in, like, Cowboy Indians magazine. It's one of the top five steakhouses west of the Mississippi. Wow. And stuff like that. So people really, you know, come accustomed to it. And we're known for our dry-aged beef. And we're known for good steaks. And my dad... You know, being who he is, being trained the way he was, he knows how to cut meat, he knows how to cook a steak. I bet. So we have this awesome grill there, and every steak's cooked on the grill, and it's about a, I don't know, a foot and a half deep coal bed that we do, and it's, um, you know, just briquette style, like gas burner, you know, mm -hmm. nothing, nothing wood fired or anything, just old style, and there's a grill guy, and he's in charge of grilling steaks, you know, that's his job, and everything works around the steaks, but... The thing about it is, it's the size of them. We, we don't have small steaks there. So for example, our boneless ribeye, um, the cowgirl is 14 ounce boneless, and the cowboy is an 18 ounce boneless. And so, tell me a cowboy's gonna come in and order a cowgirl steak? It's genius marketing, right? Yes, so, it is. So we do things like that, like the rodeo cut, we do the oil mints cut for the oil field workers, which is, was a 48-ounce porterhouse for $48. He ran the rodeo, which is an 18-ounce bone-in ribeye for $18. You know, my dad was feeding the community. He was feeding, and that's what I was talking to you about earlier, was, you know, so many people in a tourist-driven town are trying to take advantage of the tourists and trying to take advantage of their income, and they spike their prices so high they lose the locals. And my dad was always very cautious and very conscious about, you know, providing for the locals and about keeping that price point down and about really just serving them and to his own expense, you know. 
as a businessman to, wow. to be a good guy. That's a long-term strategy, clearly. It is, yeah. In like, addition to just what yeah. he believed as yeah, a human is. being, his yeah. ethos, and hating people. And that's where I get it from, like being around people and the combination of people and trying to um, do my best to make them their best type of deal. And um, so when I graduated high school, I decided to go to hospitality management school. And so I went to a small community college in Sheridan, Wyoming. It was um, over the mountain, uh, the Bighorns. It's about two and a half hours from home, and I took some courses for hospitality management. And while I was working there, um, I was a banquet server in banquets for uh, this guy named Homer Scott, who kind of runs the restaurant scene over there. And uh, I just kind of fell into working more than the school aspect of it. You know, I really learned more when I was at work than I did when I was at school, but when I was at school I learned the philosophy and, you know, everything about management, about people's personalities and that kind of stuff that I mm -hmm. wasn't learning, but then I could, could apply it at work, you know, sure. so it was very um, immediate, you know, the situation on learning. And so for me it was um, kind of a growing phase where I was still knew the money from serving, and I wasn't quite ready to go cook, but then uh, I decided, all right, I need to make a decision, I'm gonna make a change, and I went back to Cody, and I helped my dad at his restaurant for the summer, and we started like a brunch program, and we started a bunch of cool stuff like that to help generate some revenues on the off days and work with the family, and then um, I decided to go to culinary school, and I did that in Boulder, Colorado. And so I was one day from going to Jackson Hole taking a job um, in the village where it's a beautiful resort. They'd pay for me to live there. They'd put me up and they'd work seasonally, you know. And I went down to Boulder and applied for the school. And the day before I went to Jackson, they accepted me. And I was like, all right. And I was packed up to go. And instead of going right, I went left. And I was like, I'm going to Boulder. I took that left turn, you know what I mean? I just headed down the road. And I was like, I'm going to Boulder instead of, Wy instead of Jackson. And when I did that, um, the opportunity started you know like my chef teacher there was amazing wow. his name was David Olson and he had worked at the mansion on Turtle Creek and he's known as they say the aqua chef and so he worked <laughs> at, he's a certified master diver and um, he's level three psalm and he's very good with flavors very good on his palate and what he did um, to us was we had a group of nine people for our school mm -hmm. and he um, redid the curriculum to where we had a guest chef program, and so he would teach us, you know, his philosophies, and he taught us all the basic techniques, and he spent the time to teach us, and after he had our foundation and knew who we were, he started inviting in his guest chef friends, and they would come in for a week at a time, like four days, and they would all teach philosophy in a restaurant, and so we had almost 18 of them that came in for the four days, and they would present a menu from their restaurant. They would teach us how to prep it, how to cost it, how to function, how to do it, you know. Mm -hmm. And then for the me, like learning to cook and being around so many different chefs and so many different personalities, I felt like it was a great, you know, kind of exposure to develop the guy that I am today, you know, and the chef that I am today because I saw different, you know, strategies and different pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses and all these things within these guys and the way they talked to me and the way they talked to other people. It was all a kind of a vibe of understanding, you know, if I am going to be a chef, what kind of chef do I want to be, you know? That's a big one. And um, I was in the stage of just trying to hone my skills more than anything at that point, you know, and so culinary school went great, passed with awesome grades and made great friends and you know we fed people and I learned a lot of stuff from Chef David 
And after that, I had to decide where I was going to work. And luckily, we had that chef program to where we had a lot of connections, you know, from the school. And so we could reach out to the chefs that had come and taught and say, hey, can I come work, you know, for you? And I decided to take a venture that I'd never taken before and go to seafood because I'm from Wyoming. and. I love seafood so much. Okay, I have to ask you, is it just personal preference? Why do you love seafood that much? Because I grew up on elk and green beans and I'd never seen, I'd never, I'd, I'd ne I never got okay. seafood. We never ate seafood. Like, yeah. It wasn't available to us. Yeah. It wasn't something that we could afford or buy. Or mm -hmm. It was really special if we had a piece of steamed cod. That's what we looked forward to as kids, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, cod and butter, you know, that was the. That I was, had it, that you was guys. The treat as a mouth kid. melting. It's the best. And so it was <laughs> like, um, yeah, the cotton butter was real. But for me, it was the seafood. And I was like, I know how to do everything. I know how to cut beef, like portion steaks. I know how to cook steaks. I, knew, I know how to do the whole Western cuisine. But I don't know how to cook seafood, butcher fish, pair fish, or do anything. I've never seen seafood. And so I went to this guy named Jose Rosenberg. And he ha actually came two weeks for the class. He was like, one of the guest chefs. Yeah, mm -hmm. and he was like that, you know, and he, so he came to teach our class for two weeks, and um, I really took a liking to him and, like, his style and, like, what he um, preached, you know, and the way, the kind of type of guy that he was, and so I decided to try to work for him, and so, no shit, like, I uh, went to apply, and I brought my dad with me. And uh, <laughs> moral <laughs> was, support. Oh, yeah. Walk downstairs, and I'm standing there, and Jose is butchering fish. And I go, Hey, chef, I want to apply for, my, for a job here. I just finished culinary school. Mm -hmm. I got my dad standing behind me, staring at him, you know. And <laughs> of course, Jose looks at me and goes, All right, when can you start? You know? Wow. Yeah, and so, just like that? Well, yeah, he wasn't going to turn me down. He'd already worked with me for a couple weeks. And, yeah. you know, he knew that I was wanting to learn, and my dad was there. So he was like, At least I'll give him a chance, you know? if he means That's it awesome. and so when I got in there I was so rough I was just like I was born in that roadhouse and like I didn't know how to you know stay super clean or I didn't know techniques of how to you know make it shiny every night and all these little things you learn along the way I was really rough around the edges but I had the passion and the drive to learn and to do it and mm -hmm. those guys saw it in me you know and so we had a great sous chef named John Sherber who had trained at the French Laundry and he was at uh, Jack's Fish House, that was mm -hmm. the restaurant Hosea was at in Boulder and it was owned by Dave Query and Dave Query owns Big Red F in Boulder, Colorado, it's his restaurant group and he owns, almost, I think he owns 12 restaurants now in the nation mm -hmm. and he's an awesome owner, worked his way up, he's an sh awesome chef, you know, did the fine dining thing down to feeding the community again. And so, mm -hmm. since he had a restaurant group with Jack's, he had other facets of food, and he had multiple chefs in his group. So it was a good group to be in, you know, there was a lot of exposure. And working at Jack's under Jose, I would um, work there during the winter months. And so, in October, um, I would go there, because my dad's season was ending. And mm -hmm. I would show up, and I'd be like, all right, I'm back, you want to hire me? You know, again, or before I came down, I would ask him, and every time for five years, he was like, all right, even though you leave during the busy season in the summer, to go help your dad, I'll hire you back for the winter, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I did that circuit for about four or five years, going back and forth from Boulder to Cody, working for my dad and working for Jack's Fish House with Hosea. And towards the end, like four to five years there, that's when Hosea went on Top Chef, season five, New York, and mm -hmm. he ended up winning. And Big deal. It was a big deal because it was still a really brand new show back then. Mm -hmm. It was New York City, you know, that he won in, which was a big deal. 
and Boulder, being the foodie town up and coming that they were, just jumped on it. You know, they loved it so much. So we went from, you know, having two turns a night to four turns a night at a restaurant, and like long hours and busy, busy, busy. And Jose was on the road, and the owner actually came in and did a menu. And we got to work with all these different chefs in the company all of a sudden because that was the busy restaurant in the group, and we needed support. You know, mm-hmm. and we had people in our, in our system to do that in our restaurant group. So it was cool to really work there. And so when uh, things all cleared and Jose had won and it was like the time to be the best restaurant in the country, um, Dave Query put in a bunch of his head chefs as cooks. And so wow. we had Jose as a chef. We had John Sherber, who was a sous chef. Brett Smith, who is now an executive chef and owns multiple restaurants with Dave. He came in as a line cook. Melissa Harrison, who owns seasonal catering in Bozeman, Montana, who is an amazing chef and awesome person. She was on the line, too, with us. We had um, a couple of old school guys that come up from Mexico that had been working in kitchens for 20 years in Boulder that just knew how to get jobs done and how to be professional. And uh, there was like me. And so I'm surrounded by like these four executive chefs, you know, and I'm trying to learn and trying to create. And there's a couple more line cooks that are helping me that are older. And so I really got lucky and, you know, kind of benefited from Hosea winning that show and Dave, you know, putting people in to learn from. And so when that happened, um, I ended up leaving Jack's because Hosea wasn't going to come back. And when you leave Jack's, it's okay because they have other restaurants, you know. And so what happened was I ended up working at a few different restaurants in the restaurant group, you know, on and off for Dave. I to kind of keep going on my time in Boulder, and I worked in a Southwestern Cuisine restaurant. I worked in a, like a pub. I helped start um, a smoking company, like a catering company, where we had pull behind the odor smokers, and we had contracts with CEU sports teams. Mm-hmm. And so we would feed the sports teams on game days, and we would set up tailgates, and we would do private events with the smokers. And, all that, um, and that was kind of the run of Big Red F that I had. But during that time, it was good because I grew up from being a line cook to running their new company, you know, with the, with an executive chef over top of me. I was the chef de cuisine. And uh, it was good experience for me because we were at a smokers, and that's when the animals started coming. And I was like, okay, like, we can, I can smoke some meat. Like, I know how to grill meat in my dad's steakhouse. I've cooked seafood now. I know how to do that. Like, let's do some barbecue. Mm-hmm. And so we were cooking, you know, close to 40 racks of ribs a day, like, eat briskets, you know, 12 pork butts, the whole thing, chickens and everything on smokers at this place. And it's called the Westin Tavern, and it's been in Boulder for a lot of years on Pearl Street. It's really busy and really good reputation. And so um, that's when we got into Whole Pig was after the smoker uh-huh. for football season. And so uh-huh. the chef there goes, all right, I want to do a whole pig every Sunday, and I want to have it ready by the time kickoff happens at 11. So what does that mean? I have to go in at 2 in the morning. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, it sounds pig, like all night. Fire, get the fire going, get the pig on the smoker, stay up all night long, and babysit this pig on the smoker, you know? And I loved it. Like loved it so much it was so awesome just to have the, the peaceful city right in the heart of it with the smoker going with the pig on it and then game day happens sunday people are coming out in their sunday best they're walking pearl street mall everything we have the smoker right on the sidewalk out front you know people can see this whole pig and it turned into a thing you know people were really excited about it so that was when i first started cooking whole pigs wow that. um and i had that job loved that job 
it was great. And Hosea came back, you know, and wanted to start his own company. And he started um, Black Belly. And that's uh. his restaurant today, still. And he asked me if I'd be a chef de cuisine for the catering company because he needed someone to travel with him. Mm-hmm. And he needed someone to help cook in all these places that he had to go cook for the agency he was working with after Top Chef. Mm-hmm. And so I would uh, go with him and travel, and we would cook all over the country together. You know, we'd go to different cities and different people's houses. It was all private parties for the most part. And so people would call and say, hey, we're having a wedding in Chicago. And every menu was customized to them. Mm-hmm. And at Black Belly, we had a farm that we kind of contracted out with the guy. And we had a nice rancher. He was awesome. Raised his family animals already. And he was nice enough to partner up with Hosea and say, yeah, I'll raise animals for you. Wow. And so we had, um, about four, we had 49 pigs. We had seven different breeds. And we got those from the owner of Tinderbelly. When he was first starting his company, he was went back to Iowa and got us the best heritage breed, full bloodline assortment of hogs, and drove them back to Colorado for us. And that's how we started Black Belly Farm, was with those hogs and with Black Belly sheep. So the Black, wow. Black Belly Barbados sheep were already being raised on the ranch that we signed up with. And so that's where we got our name from, was Black Belly. And it's a hair sheep that people aren't familiar with, but with hair sheep, it's interesting because there's no lanolin. And so there's no, mut- there's no mutton, there's none of that laminous flavor going oh, on like you okay. would in a normal sheep. So with that, you get the benefits of raising an older sheep, which is better for the land, mm-hmm. more work for the land. Yeah. You get more muscle structure and definition, and you get a, a longer life where you can actually pack in natural fats from the grasses, mm-hmm. and you're not risking the f- having mutton. You know, so people really loved the meat, they loved the lamb, and they loved the pork. And so when you raise 50 pigs at one time, you can't serve 50 pigs at one time. So I'd been staging um, in the butchery at that point, because I knew that it was going to happen, you know. And so on our tours, we went to Iowa State University, and I got Pork 101 certified there. Um, I went to um, a charcuterie certification with Chef Ryan Polson and worked under him for a while, learning, you know, the art of cured meat of charcuterie. Mm-hmm. And Brian Polson and Michael Ruhlman, they wrote the book Charcuterie and Salumi, mm-hmm. if you know those books. Um, but he had some classes and workshops that I trained in, and that was kind of my um, liking of, like, interesting, like, cured meat, this is awesome. And then I found a guy named Mark Donettes. And Mark Donettes owned El Mondo Vecchio, and that was in Denver, Colorado. And it was one of the first no-nitrate curing facilities in America. And he's a first-generation American-Italian that came over from Italy with his family's mold. And so he had a little shop in South Denver that he did artisan meats with no-nitrates. And we would go in there at about 4 o'clock in the morning, and we would cut pig and cure meat. And by, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning, we'd have close to 1,000 pounds done. Wow. Yeah, so he knew how to do it. It was efficient, it was good, and it was a working business. But what happened was the USDA, and the USDA wanted him to prove lethality to salmonella twice. Okay, and with that's why they make you add nitrates to your meat. Yeah, is to the lethality of salmonella and all this. Um, Mark said, "No, I'm not. I won't do that. Like, I'm not going to add nitrates to my meat. I don't have to. My family's been doing this for 400 years, and it's safe." Mm-hmm. I won't do it. You know, pretty much, you just get animals, you just get practices, you have safe meat. Yeah. And so, um, ended up, you know, 
going big and the Supreme Court and all these other things. And there's a guy named Balin Linekin, who's a food advocacy lawyer. He wrote the book, Biting the Hand That Feeds You. And him and Mark teamed up and they were talking. And, you know, they kind of ended up closing the shop instead of being shut down. Mark said, you know what, if you guys won't let me do it, I'm just going to close my doors. And so he ended up closing El Mondo Vecchio. And when he did that, there was three of us working there for him. And we loved it so much. And it was kind of like squashing the spider and the other ones run out, you know? And so they squashed one guy and all of a sudden we went, there, there was three people curing meat in Colorado, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what Black Belly was. And so we started Black Belly Provisions from El Mondo Vecchio. And so we would travel with our cured meats, and we would do these things, and we would really showcase how to raise heritage breed animals on a farm sustainably mm-hmm. and preserve the meats. And that's yeah. kind of where Black Belly got its identity behind Hosea, winning Top Chef and being an awesome chef, you know? And um, so me, my role changed from chef de cuisine, kind of, to more of like a butcher style, butcher air kind of training deal going on there. And we brought in a chef named Josh Chesterson, and he had been um, in Denver for a while opening some restaurants, but he trained at Blue Hill at Stone Barns with Dan Barber, so he had the knack for vegetables and the knack for quality food. And so Boulder was great for him because it's so fruitful. There's so many farms and ranches. It was great for him to get involved with our team because he brought so much to it. And it took me out of the realm of having to be the chef, you know, so I could focus on the meat. And so with that team, we did really good for a lot of years, you know, kicking ass at catering and all this. And eventually um, I got a call from my dad and he goes, hey man, like I could use your help again. Like we're having some struggles up here, you know, with some people and we need to get the family back together for a while and get back on track. And so my brother, he moved back from Alaska and I moved up there and my other brother and sister were there and we all worked. And we helped my dad, you know, do the thing. And my brother still runs my dad's restaurant up there for him. And um, while I was doing that through the season, I got a call from a buddy um, in New England. He had just relocated from Denver in Boulder, where he worked at Jack's Fish House with us um, through Jose's stint, because we had to call on a bunch of really good chefs to help. And he got an opportunity in New England. And he goes, hey, man, you want to move to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and open a restaurant with me? I said, hey, like, why not? I want to go to New England. So packed up the car and drove to New England. And I showed up there and went to his restaurant and he handed me a key. He goes, this is the key to your house, man. It's here and here and here. And so we had a dinner and drove, you know, unlocked the door and turned on the lights. And it was like, all right, this is where I live. I didn't pick out a house. I didn't, it was all set up for me. So he made it really easy. And so when I got to New England, it was like a new fire because I'd been trained in Boulder with the animals and everything. Like no one, everyone in New England wanted to know what it was like out west, you know. So it was funny to talk to him because it was so different. And I'd been trained in shellfish, luckily. Yeah. So, so I could do it, you know. And so there's a guy named Jay McSherry in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And he owns a place called Jumpin' Jay's Fish House along with lots of other restaurants. And he's a really good guy. And he partners with his chefs on a lot of restaurants. He's always, you know, giving back to the community. He's always doing the right thing. And so once again, I fell into the right restaurant group up there. And so I was there to help consult and build the meat program for him. And it was called Vida Cantina, that's what it's called. Mexican, that little nice high-end Mexican restaurant. And so we got really into making all those beautiful birrias, like machacas, all these awesome, you know, Hispanic meats that 
um, kind of fused with the tradition of cured meats. So we would have a cured meat board with fish, like all like a fish platter of like pickled white fishes and preserved herrings and all these different things that we could offer, you know, just like they used to, you know, have to preserve your meat, you preserve your fish, just like mm-hmm. you preserve your meat, you know. So that was a cool challenge for me to have an awesome chef there that wanted to, you know, put it into me and say, okay, we need a badass meat program, so the, let's do this thing together. And so I worked there, and after about three months, the head chef ended up leaving. And he uh, ended up taking an opportunity at a farm in upstate New York, and he left. And I was still working there, and I was like, all right, my friend left. Like, do I still want to be here, you know? Mm. And uh, they hired a guy named David Vargas. And Chef David's the man. Like, what a great guy. He, uh, I always joked with him, you know, about... Are you the only Hispanic guy in New England or what, Dave? Like, come <laughs> on, man. And just kind of giving him hell. But his flavors, his, like, his ethnic, like, you know, proportion of, you know, simplicity to what he portrays it to in New England is so crazy. You don't see that combination very often of a high-end kind of Mexican restaurant in a wealthy community, you know, yeah. put on by the real thing. So when he showed up, he brought in the scratch element to that kitchen where all the tortillas, all the, everything was done from scratch. And so I was learning again, and I was yeah. excited, and I was like, all right, man, it's awesome. And at the same time, they offered me a job at their other restaurant up in New York Beach, Maine, and it was called uh, Gigi's. And mm-hmm. it was an old um, Italian place. I think it was a Barbara Lynch restaurant. I think she started it um, up there a long time ago. But our buddies in that restaurant group had bought it, and. There were some chefs up there that I got along with, and they asked me to come be a line cook at night for the season on, mm-hmm. to- on top of doing the meat program for Vita. And I said, yeah, man, I'll be a line cook. Let's do that. I need some, I need some more practice cooking and hanging mm-hmm. out with you guys. So I would drive up to, Ma- to Maine every day and work after my shift in the morning at Vita. And so I would go on the Vita and do the whole, all the meat, all the prep, and then I would get in my car and drive about an hour north up the coastline. It was a beautiful drive. I'll never forget it. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palette Exposure featuring Alona Thompson. We'll see you again next week.